Lord of hosts will do this. And then Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the uh, world should be re, uh, registered. This was the first registration when uh, Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed. And with and, and who was with child, and while they were there, uh, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in the swaddling cloths, and laid him in the manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Okay. The uh, kids are dismissed, uh, and uh, for their Sunday school. And our message today is going to be, again, centered around the uh, subject of peace. And what I'd like to do is to read one more scripture as we begin the, uh, the message. And as we do, if you join me in prayer, please. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word together. As we do, it's sometimes easy to read scriptures that are familiar to us and, and uh, you know, we, we just don't want to miss anything you have for us. So open our hearts and our minds that we'll, we will be able to glean from every word and no matter where we are in our walk with you, Lord, that there will be something for each of us this morning through your Holy Spirit opening our hearts and minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, in chapter 2 of, of Luke, uh, starting with verse 8, it says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And an angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. And suddenly with, there was with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts singing, or praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom He is pleased. Their response to that followed and they said, hey, let's go see what these angels have been talking about. So, uh, what we're looking at here is, is this, this idea of peace. It says there's a peace on earth. You know, this, this, this Messiah, this one that's born, the Savior, is going to bring peace. But you notice, it doesn't say on earth, it says to all whom God is well pleased. And we'll look at that a little closer as well. How many of you see the Christmas cards that have already maybe even got one that says, you know, peace on earth, and, and it doesn't finish the Scripture? This particular peace is not talking about peace on earth. It's talking about peace between man and God. And so, as we look at this, uh, we look at this announcement to the shepherds first. By the way, just a side note, the shepherds, 
were considered the lowest of the low uh, in society. They did not get to uh, participate in uh, the things of the temple. They didn't get. They didn't normally bring the offerings and the things like this. And so, and plus, they were normally considered unclean because they'd been handling animals and this type of thing. And so, they they were the low people on the totem pole, so to speak. And the fact that the angels appeared to the shepherds is is uh, something that, that is really important for us to grasp because that lets us know this is truly the God of all the people and not just a special group of people. And uh, so, uh, just side note for that. Peace among those whom He is well pleased. Okay? Keep that in the back of your mind. Isaiah 7.14 uh, if you take a look at that, it says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call His name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God is with us. And the Gospel of John really points that out for us in the very first chapter. In fact, it's, it's the very first verse. It says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Okay? Now, some people could debate what the Word is. Are we talking about the spoken Word, the Bible, this type of thing? But verse 14 of chapter 1 of John clearly tells us who the Word is. It says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So there's that picture, Emmanuel, God is with us. The Word is with us. The Word who was with God and is God was with us. The other names, the ones that I just read out of Isaiah uh, chapter 9, are interesting in and of themselves as well. Again, starting off with what Isaiah writes here in, in a prophetic picture, he says, Unto us a child is born. And the idea of a child is that this is going to be someone, something in the flesh. In other words, it's going to be human. It's going to be man. Okay, and, and so the second one says, and unto us a son is given. But the word son is, as you look at it, we'll see references it's his relationship as God in the, you know. So we see man, we see God. Again, this coming of a man who is God, coming in the flesh. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and the same shall, and, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And I looked up the words for this, and the idea of, of, of wonderful is just simply one who is in connection with uh, those that he is around. He, he's, he's, he's wonderful to them. He knows them. He meets them. He is aware of who everybody is. And so, uh, you sometimes might think of yourself as you meet somebody, say, what a wonderful person. He's, he's, he's so enjoyable to meet or talk with, this type of thing. That The idea was he was approachable, this, this whole idea of, of with the people. Wonderful. But this word counselor is 
not one who gives counsel as much as one who is familiar with the temptations and the sufferings of humanity. In other words, this wonderful person is one of who is familiar with sufferings and temptations. If you go to Hebrews chapter 2 and chapter 4, they, it discusses these very same qualities in reference to Jesus. It says, for instance, that he, he experienced or knew every temptation that was of man. And some people will say, well, does that mean he was sexually tempted and, and this stuff? All I can say is it says every temptation that man was familiar with, he knew about and had experienced for us. You're familiar with his, the Scriptures that say that he was in the wilderness for 40 days and that he was tempted by the devil. And it was... The, the temptation that we're familiar with are, are three. That he was tempted to uh, jump off the, the wall of the, uh, in the temple and... There was a. There were those who believed from a, a, a small scripture in, in Psalms that he was going to jump. The Messiah would jump off the wall and land on his feet without being injured. Okay, so there was a temptation. Why would Satan use that? Because he would like to see the Messiah go ahead and get all the recognition without going to the cross. So he could bypass the cross, get all the recognition by just going in and. and Taking this leap. Or that, you know, he said, I'll, I'll give you all the things of the world. You know, and, and if you just, re, you know, reveal yourself basically, you'll be, you'll be the, the prince and the king of kings of the world. Again, bypass the cross. Turn this, this, uh, bread, this rock into bread. Show your powers. And, and bypass the cross. That was his idea that tried to get him. But you, you realize after you read through this uh, multiple times that it says he was tempted continuously for those 40 days. So he was probably tempted in every way you can imagine by Satan. And the final temptations were those that would have to deal with his being the Messiah. But he was tempted as a man in every way. And so we have Jesus... Uh, you know, this, I, this mighty, wonderful counselor who has a heart for all the people and he knows them. He's, he wants to approach them. He's wanting to come to them. He's also called mighty God. And the word mighty here is to be great in power and strength. And God is to be the God. Okay, so he's mighty God. He's a counselor. He's he's in, he's in tune with the people. He wants to minister to them, and he's the mighty God. And again, since we have what happened, what he wrote in seven fourteen prior to this, Emmanuel, God is with us. All of this tying together, and then it says, "Everlasting Father." The idea of everlasting is permanent. It's a permanent position that he's talking about. Everlasting. 
that he's going to have with these people that he ministers to. And the idea of father is the idea of compassionate relationship. He is going to have an everlasting, permanent, compassionate relationship with all those he ministers to. And of course, what we're talking about are those in whom God is well pleased. Those will be the people that he ministers to. Who are those? All who accept Christ as their Savior. That's how we please God, is to accept Jesus, His Son, as our Savior. And this idea of, of permanence in the sense of relationship and, and, and all is expressed by Paul. And I thought I'd just uh, read this real quick uh, in, in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, to, writes starting with the 31st uh, verse, in reference to those who have been justified, who are in a relationship with God. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who, who, who died. More than that, He who was raised. Who is the, the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? In other words, who can come against us? Who can stand against us if God, Christ is interceding for us? There's a, a scripture in Zechariah that's really a powerful picture of what God does for us. There's a, a high priest in, in all his vestments standing before Christ and, he, and, and he's to be judged. And there's Satan standing there with him to, and it says to accuse him. And as I, my picture, I, 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 I probably make it a little bit too uh, more towards ch children to understand, but it's like he would be holding a list that just flows with all the things. Uh, on one day he said this to a poor person, and one day he did this, and one day he did... And he's got this list. He's ready to read it. He's ready to condemn this this person. And the Lord says to Satan... To be quiet. Not to say a word, basically. Because he's already interceded for the high priest. So Satan, here he is wanting to, to read his list and accuse, and he can't do it because he's been silenced. That is us before the throne of God. Satan's going to want to, to read the list, so to speak, but he's already been silenced. We already stand innocent because of the blood of Christ. And so, there's nothing to be held against us. There's no words to, that He can bring against us. And I think that is such an amazing thing to contemplate and to think about. Mighty God, everlasting Father, with this permanent relationship with us. Uh, 
he, he goes on and, and he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed, in all, uh, killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things we are more than conquerors. Through Him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ and there is nothing that can separate us from that. Again, what a powerful thing to know in reference to our salvation. So he's a wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. He's everlasting Father. And, and he has this compassionate, everlasting relationship with us. And then he's called the Prince of Peace. The word for peace here is shalom. The word for prince would be one, we could also use the word Lord in its place. The Lord of Peace. But the word peace, shalom, is, is to, different than peace in a sense of, of no wars or battles or, or anything like that. Uh, no tribulations. It's to, to have a wholeness or a completeness. To be made whole or to be made complete. So when somebody was said shalom, peace, was peace be with you meant May you be blessed with everything you need. May you be made whole and complete. The Prince of Peace is the one who makes us whole and complete. And so, uh, we become all that we were created to be. Now, what interferes with that in our lives? Sin. And so, the uh, look at sin and it says because of sin there is death. Spiritual and physical death. But when we are entering into a relationship with Christ, death is removed as a threat. It no longer, it loses its sting, Paul says. Oh, death, where is your sting? What that means is we're no longer afraid of it because we know that we have victory over it because of what Christ has done. And when Christ draws us into it, we now are made whole and complete. We will have a victory over death and so it's lost its sting. So the Prince of, of Peace has intervened on our behalf. And again, uh, you know, Emmanuel, God is with us, He became flesh. When He became flesh, what was His motivation? To do this. Well, according to Paul in Philippians chapter 2, starting with the fifth verse, his motivation was to empty himself. When it says to empty himself, it's a, it's a difficult verse to, to completely comprehend because we're not sure fully what empty himself really dealt with. But he never stopped being God, so he didn't empty himself of being God, but he no longer used his authority as God. Instead, he actually prays to the Father as a man would. He actually says, 
I only do what the Father tells me to do. And it becomes a man in, in relationship to the Father. And yet he's still God. It's, it's, it's beyond our ability to fully comprehend. And so, he intervenes on our behalf. It says in Philippians that he emptied himself and became flesh, became a man, even to the point of being a servant of man, even to the point of the cross. When I was looking at this, I, I, I said, you know, we're at peace with God. We've been saved. Uh, you know, how is, how does He do this? You know, what's the, 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 the way that is, is talked about here, uh, in, in, in Isaiah again, now in chapter 53, He gives some very specific details about what Jesus goes through and does on our behalf. Isaiah chapter 53. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. In fact, if you went back two verses into, into chapter 52, verse 14 and 15 as well, it's all a picture of the sacrifice that Christ makes. But I'm just going to look at a couple of the verses, uh, verses 4 through 5. The prophetic picture here. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We, yet, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. And the word wounded here literally means pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Wholeness, completeness. Stand before the throne of God without sin. His chastisement brought us that peace. And with His stripes we are healed. You know, you can go on, verse 10, it says, He was crushed. Uh, the Lord... Uh, uh, was crushed. Uh, he was put uh, to grief. Uh, just powerful pictures of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that this is a peace beyond our understanding in Philippians chapter 4. In chapter 14 of John and chapter 16, we're informed that it's a peace that can't be given like the world gives. Okay, again, what are the what's the worldly kind of peace that we would be looking for? What do you have in the back of your head in mind? You know, your maybe a fantasy, if if you will, if if that would make you the happiest person in the world. Yet, what you know, whatever it would be, and. It's not unusual that it would be a large sum of money. You know, if I just had this, I would be at peace. I'd be happy. And that idea of being at peace. But it would be a worldly peace. What 
is being talked about here is a spiritual peace. And it doesn't matter who you are or what you have, you can have this spiritual peace. In fact, as you have this peace, it's not a guarantee against sorrows and tribulation and grief. It's a different kind of peace. It's to be again at peace with God. Why can't we be at peace with God? Well, the Scripture tells us that He is holy. And in order for us to be in His presence, we must be holy as He is holy. But because of sin, we can't get there. And so Jesus became flesh, even to the point of, of a servant, even to the point of the cross, in order to bring us into a relationship with God where God would look at us through the blood of Christ and see us as holy. We are at peace with God. I put in my notes here, we're saved. Back in Romans again in chapter 5, just a, a couple more verses I'd like to share with you. Paul writes in the very first verse of Romans chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The Prince of Peace has covered us. We have peace with God because we have been justified. I remember hearing the first time I heard it was just right after I started Bible college. Somebody defined justified. Justified never sinned. And that was an easy way to remember its purpose. Justified. Justified never sinned. Been made righteous and sinless through the blood of Christ. And so it says here that we've been justified through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into his, this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Again, that picture, we are at peace in this world of chaos. Why is the world in chaos? Sin. But we are at peace because of what Christ has done for us. One more scripture I want to share. The last scripture I have this morning from Colossians chapter 2. <clears throat> Excuse me. Colossians chapter 2, starting with the 13th verse. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, referring to Christ, having forgiven us of our trespasses, by canceling the record of our debt that stood against us 
with its legal demands. What are the legal demands of sin? Anybody want to offer it? Death. Spiritual and physical death. Separation from God eternally. This, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them up to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. This idea of these authorities and rulers are referring to the demonic world, actually. Christ put them to shame. He defeated them. He defeated death. He defeated Satan. And as a result, they have been humiliated. I love that idea. Satan's been humiliated through the blood of Christ. And as we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, every time someone does that, he's humiliated all over again. And it's a powerful picture of the awesomeness of the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fact that Satan has lost the battle. As we look at this Scripture, I guess it would be a good Scripture that would lead us into communion. Again, as we look at this you know, you, me, us, we were dead in our trespasses. God made us alive. He made us alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand. And he did this by nailing it to the cross. The rulers and authorities have been disarmed. Every time we share in communion, we're celebrating this victory. We look at it and, and, and we think of, you know, it's to remind us of what Christ did on the cross, yes. It's to remind us of the cross, yes but it's also to remind us of the victory that it brings into our lives. We have been made whole and complete. We have been justified. We can now stand before the throne of God through the blood of Christ and know that we have eternal life. And the neat thing as I read in Romans, nothing created can take it away from us. And as a result, every time we share in communion, we're sharing the past, what Christ has done, the present, what Christ is doing, and the future, what Christ is yet to do. And we celebrate it with that context that He is coming again. He told the the disciples, in fact, I'll read it again this morning, that this was something He would not do again until we were united together in His kingdom. I really believe that will be the marriage feast that the Scriptures talk about in Revelation. So, we have communion to share this morning. And we have...
two trays. One has got the cup with the bread. Uh, there's two separate cups here hooked together. And uh, then there's also on this side the ones that are uh, a packet. And uh, feel free to take whichever one you're most comfortable with. But we will be having you self-serve again this morning. And uh, so, while we're singing our communion song, if you'll come forward, pick up the communion, and uh, return to your seat. Hold it until we've all been served, and then we can uh, share it together. Jesus must 
Gospel of Matthew. It's recorded. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Let us share in the bread. Continuing, it says, And Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks to uh, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Let us share. Again, Father, we thank you. As we come to this table, break bread together, to be reminded again why we call you the Prince of Peace. You purchased our peace through the cross, and we thank you. And we ask, Lord, that you would go with us. Cause us to just rest in that amazing mercy, that amazing grace that You have poured out on us. And to be prepared, Lord, if given the opportunity, through the power of Your Holy Spirit directing us, to giving us the words to say, to share what You have done for us with someone else. That they might too come to know the awesomeness of Jesus Christ, Savior. We worship You. We praise You. We ask that You go with us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song, please? Your glorious cause, O God, engages our hearts may Jesus Christ be known wherever we are we ask not for ourselves but for our renown the cross has saved us so we pray your kingdom come let your kingdom come let your will be done so that everyone might know your name let your song be heard everywhere on earth till your sovereign work on earth is done Let your kingdom come. Give 
us your strength, O God, and courage to speak. Perform your wondrous deeds through those who are weak. Lord, use us as you want, whatever the test. My grace will preach your gospel tell our dying breath. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done, so that everyone might know your name. And let your song be heard everywhere on earth. Tell your sovereign work on earth is let your kingdom come and let your kingdom come let your will be done so that everyone might know your name so that everyone might know your name you have a wonderful rest of the day Oh, and don't forget the daily breads are out here.